Our passage for today is Matthew 21, 1 to 11, the triumphal entry. If you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Uh, with this passage, we will officially begin our study of Passion Week. The triumphal entry occurs on the Sunday of the last week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we're going to be working through the events of this week, Passion Week, over the next several months as we wrap up our study of Matthew. Uh, we're going to wrap that up, Lord willing, sometime around Easter next year. Uh, let's begin by reading today's passage together. Again, that's Matthew 21, 1-11. to Matthew has just told us how Jesus healed the two blind men outside of Jericho on the way up to Jerusalem. Now he continues here in chapter 21, saying, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as uh, Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. For someone as monumentally famous as Jesus is, there is a surprisingly large amount of speculation about who he was, or perhaps better stated, who he is. I mean, there's no arguing that he's changed the world, that's clear, but sometimes it can seem that no one can really agree on to what end he changed the world. Sure, he's captivating, he's revolutionary even, but who was he? What did he really stand for? What was his message to the world? You get all kinds of speculation on this. For example, there are a great many people who say that Jesus was a wise teacher who came to preach a message of love to the world. That's perhaps the most popular conception of Jesus. He was a wise and gifted religious leader who taught people that they need to just start loving each other. People who claim that Christianity teaches the same basic message as every other world religion, for instance, that's usually the position that they hold. They assume that most world religions teach their followers to love other people, and as they hear some of Jesus' teachings, they believe that this was the core of His message as well. That's a very popular opinion, that Christianity is essentially a moral system, that its purpose is to basically lay out a code of conduct for its followers to practice, in this case, love, and that Jesus is really no more than the founder of this ethical system. That's one take on Jesus. He was a good moral teacher. Along these same lines, you have some who say that Jesus was some kind of social revolutionary. Essentially, they say that Jesus came to fight social injustice, that he came to heal the sick and feed the poor. His main message, they say, was one of equality. 
He wanted to reform social and religious structures so that everyone would be treated equally. Of course, you have a great many people who say that Jesus was none of the above because he didn't actually exist. Jesus doesn't mean or stand for anything, they say, because he's nothing more than a figment of the apostles' imagination. Or, perhaps supposing he did exist, he still did nothing like we have in the Gospels today, so we can't really say who Jesus is or what he stood for. We can only really say what he means to us. That's one way of looking at Jesus. And yet, even among those who do believe that Jesus existed and that what he said and did is reliably recorded for us in the Scriptures, even among this group, there's a great amount of disagreement about what Jesus stood for what his message was all about. You have a great many who believe that Jesus came to improve our life here on earth. Basically, Jesus died for sin so that in overcoming sin, he might pour blessing out on our lives today. This view is obviously going to be prominent among the prosperity preachers, the televangelists, but as I said a few weeks ago when we looked at the rich young ruler, there's a subtle undercurrent even among what we would consider to be mainstream evangelical churches that the thing that Jesus really wants for us is to make this life better. Again, it's subtle, but they'll talk about forgiveness, they'll talk about forgiveness of sins, but really peace of mind, healthier relationships, Financial stability, basically the blessing of pure moral living. This is, in essence, the good news that is used to attract people to Jesus. Again, don't get me wrong, they don't deny the cross, but in its essence, their message is Jesus teaches us to obey God, and as we obey God, we lead a better quality of life. Then there are still others who, accepting the reliability of the Scripture's teaching, say that the gospel is about none of these things. It may touch on many of these ideas in part, but none of these things are the core of Christ's message. The core of Christ's message, they say, is about eternal life. It's about forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. Jesus is the Son of God who came to die on behalf of sinners, and He died on their behalf in order to pay the penalty of their sin for them so that they might be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God. Their sin creates a barrier in their relationship with God. Jesus came to remove that barrier through His death on the cross so that everyone who believes in Him can spend eternity worshiping God in heaven. That's another way of looking at Jesus. And by the way, I would say is the biblical view. (laughs) Point is, there's just a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And again, this is true even among Bible-believing Christians, surprisingly enough, even Bible-believing Christians can have a hard time sorting out the essence of Jesus' mission and message. So it really shouldn't surprise us that many in Israel had a hard time sorting this out in Jesus' day as well. Although the Scriptures clearly predicted the character and nature of the Messiah, although it even predicted the very timing of the Messiah, and although Jesus possessed that character, and He came at the time predicted while performing many signs and wonders that demonstrated He was the Messiah, the people at that time still had a very hard time recognizing Him. Even though John the Baptist was running around for maybe about a year, year and a half, telling people, this is the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire, and even though the people regarded John as a prophet, even still a great many people had a hard time recognizing who Jesus was. 
In fact, a full three years after Jesus began his public ministry, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they told him, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So even after all the authority that Jesus claimed in the face of the religious leaders over issues like Sabbath, and even after all the signs and wonders that verified his claim to this authority, even still the people could not understand the meaning of it all. Now, this was partly by design. As we saw last week, throughout most of his ministry, Jesus was fairly intentional about only hinting at his messianic identity without publicly affirming it. In fact, even after Jesus asked the disciples who the people said he was, he asked them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. So yeah, the crowds didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't exactly trying to publish that fact throughout most of his ministry. He would leave enough there for those who had ears to hear and understand, men like the disciples, but he wouldn't just come right out and say it. So the crowds had a hard time understanding who Jesus was, and that was partly by design. And it was also partly due to the obfuscation of the religious leaders. We saw back in Matthew 12 that even when the people did start to put it all together and begin asking in regards to Jesus, can this be the son of David? Just when his identity is starting to really emerge, the religious leaders were right there, ready to jump in and cover up that truth by saying that Jesus was a false teacher who performed wonders by the power of Satan. So if we really want to know why Israel couldn't get it, why it was they couldn't understand that Jesus was the Christ, well, there were definitely reasons. Now, in the passage that we looked at last week, that changed significantly. Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem from Jericho. He's traveling among thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who are making their way up to Galilee, to go up to, uh, from Galilee to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Almost all of them would have certainly heard about Jesus. A great many of them would have probably heard him teach, maybe, maybe even watched him heal. Some in the crowd even regard him as a prophet. And in light of all of that, a crowd is apparently gathered around him. They're no doubt curious to see what's going to happen next when this famously controversial teacher and miracle worker gets up to Jerusalem. And while Jesus is making his way out of Jericho, these two blind men start crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the reason why they're crying out, son of David, is because they understood that the healing of the blind was a specifically Davidic miracle. Isaiah said that the blind would be healed at the time of Israel's restoration, and apparently this healing was not only a result of the curse's reversal, it was also emblematic of the spiritual restoration that God's blind and deaf messenger Israel would receive from His chosen suffering servant, the Son of David. So this is why they're crying out, Son of David. It was the Christ who would heal the blind, the blind would be healed at the coming of His kingdom. And of course, the crowds, they don't think that's who Jesus is. They think he's a captivating teacher. Perhaps some even think he's a prophet, but he's not the Christ. So they try to silence these two men. The men, however, only cry out all the more. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And what happens next? Jesus stops. 
He walks over to the men, and right there along the road, right there in front of all of these Galilean pilgrims heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover, he asks these men, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, Lord, let our eyes be open. And in pity, in compassion, Jesus touches their eyes, and immediately they receive their sight, and they start following Jesus. Now, as I pointed out last week, this is a game changer in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, he's hinted at his Davidic identity, but he wouldn't declare it openly. In fact, he heals two other blind men earlier in Matthew, but he does it privately, and he sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. A similar thing occurs with the healing of another blind man in Mark as well. He brings the man outside of the village to heal him, and then he sends the man home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus was very particular about not revealing himself in such a clear and powerful way up to this point. And that's because he knew, he knew that once his Davidic identity was revealed, it would only be a short matter of time before he was killed. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen straight away. He needed time to establish a collection of witnesses to carry on his message and mission before he let that happen. But now Jesus reveals his Davidic identity. He does it publicly, openly, outside Jericho. He saw back in chapter 16 that the foundation of his church was established. And he's been moving up to Jerusalem ever since then. Now as he exits Jericho and begins his trek up to Jerusalem, he ignites the fuse of Passion Week by openly and clearing, clearly revealing his Davidic identity to the crowds. Just like he opened the eyes of the blind men, he finally removes the veil covering his true identity to Israel. His messianic role, the truth that he is in fact the son of David, is fully and publicly revealed. And powerfully so. And if you, if you want to understand the triumphal entry, this is really where you have to begin. In today's passage, you have these throngs of people who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna in the highest! Do you know where that's coming from? I mean, have you ever wondered how it is that Jesus is being welcomed here with such extreme enthusiasm when up to this point in His ministry, the crowds have treated Jesus with relative indifference? Don't get me wrong, there's certainly been excitement over Jesus' ministry before this point. Uh, We saw back in chapter 14 that when Jesus got into a boat to withdraw from Galilee and be alone with His disciples for a while, uh, there were people practically running alongside the shoreline, chasing Him to meet Him at His next destination. And when Jesus got there and subsequently performed the feeding of the 5,000, the people were ready to take Him by force and make Him king. So there's been instances of enthusiasm, don't get me wrong. But overall, that's not been the picture that Matthew has presented for us. There's been curiosity. The people have been interested in Jesus, certainly. But apart from one or two isolated events, there's not been this wholesale willingness to embrace Jesus. The people have been impressed with His teaching. They've been amazed by His signs and wonders, but they've not been willing to accept Him as the Christ. They'll call Him a great teacher. Perhaps they'll even say He's a prophet, but He's not the Christ. They're very hesitant to go that far. Now there's no hesitation. 
there's this incredibly enthusiastic acceptance of Jesus, so much so actually that we'll see during Passion Week, the religious leaders are going to be afraid to even lay a finger on Jesus. They're terrified of him at this point. That's how enthusiastic this reception is. He's become so popular that they're terrified of him. They want to destroy him, but they don't know how to do it without inciting the crowds. Where does that popularity come from? You may be tempted to say it's from the sign that Jesus performs here. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, but before he enters, he sends the disciples to go and find this donkey and have it brought to him. This command is important not because it demonstrates divine omniscience, but because it reveals that what Jesus is about to do here is intentional. It's planned out. Jesus is staying in Bethany at this point, which was a couple of miles east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. He's at Bethpage when he tells his disciples to go and get this donkey. It's not exactly certain today where Bethpage was, but it's agreed it was also located on the Mount of Olives on the way to Jerusalem. So we're talking about a location that is very close to Bethany. Jesus has stayed in Bethany before. He even resurrected Lazarus at Bethany. John says that many of the Jews who saw what he did with Lazarus believed in him. So Jesus could already know where this donkey is because he's been in this area before and he knows the owners. They're people who believed in him. This would actually help explain why they let the disciples walk off with the donkey when they're told the Lord needs them. They know Jesus' disciples. They recognize them. And they're told the Lord needs them. They let them go because they recognize Jesus' Messiahship. They believe in Jesus. They recognize He's the Davidic King. And so they know who the disciples are speaking of when they say the Lord. And they recognize Jesus' rights as King to use their property. Now, now, I'm not saying that this is exactly how it happened. I don't think we can know how this exchange happened, other than to say that somehow it would seem these people already knew who Jesus was, and they recognized His authority as King to confiscate their property for royal purposes. Point is, this, this doesn't have to be a display of divine omniscience. I don't think that's Matthew's point here. Rather, Matthew's point, even in the way that Jesus is making this request, is that number one, Jesus is now openly asserting his rights as king. And number two, this sign that he demonstrates with this donkey is a thought-out, planned, intentional sign. So what is that sign? Well, Matthew tells us, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's a reference to Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, obviously, that's a loose paraphrase on Matthew's part. He's dropping some parts out of Zechariah 9.9. He may even be altering the wording a little bit from Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, to say to the, to the daughter of Zion, in order to make an allusion to Isaiah 62.10-12. That was our call to worship this morning, which reads, Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people's, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Uh, Matthew will do this from time to time. 
you know, play with the wording a little bit, paraphrase a quotation in order to make a theological point. We saw this back in chapter 8 where he alters the wording of Isaiah 53.4 from surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows to he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I mean, in chapter 2, he even says that Jesus grew up in Nazareth in order to, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's no direct prediction in the Old Testament that the Messiah would grow up in Nazareth, but that's not the point with Matthew. That's not how he works with prophecy. He's concerned with concepts. That's how he works with prophecy. He's concerned with how the Old Testament foreshadowed the Messiah, how it predicted what he would be like conceptually through its prophecies, not about its specific predictions. So he doesn't quote Zechariah 9.9 exactly because he's not trying to do that. It's the general concept of Zechariah that he's interested in and what it proclaims about the character of the Messiah specifically. That's what he's looking at. And in this entry, that's what he sees. Zechariah 9.9 predicted this kind of entry into Jerusalem. And as it does, it reveals something very specific about the Messiah. Now, we'd be tempted to think that what it reveals is the identity of the Messiah. Like, it identifies the fact that Jesus of Nazareth and not someone else, He's the Davidic King. In other words, Jesus rides in on this donkey in order to reveal that He is the Son of David, and that's why the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. There's a couple of problems with this, though. First, that wouldn't be a very effective means of revealing this truth, because anyone can do that. Anyone can ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's not very hard. That's not a very good basis to believe that someone's a Messiah. Anyone can do that. Now, the healing of the blind, that's a different story. So it's hard to say that the purpose of this sign is to reveal his divinic identity for the first time because that by itself is not sufficient to prove he's the son of David. The healing of the blind back in Jericho disclosed this fact about Jesus, and now the people are hailing him in light of that fact. The second reason why it's hard to say that this reveals Jesus' identity as the Messiah is the fact that it would seem that the people, they didn't even understand the connection that Jesus was making when he did this. Matthew doesn't share that with us. This comes from John. In John's description of the triumphal entry, he quotes this verse. And then he says immediately after that, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him and had been done to Him. The way John states that is important. It's not just that the disciples didn't understand the sign. They didn't even remember that Zechariah 9.9 predicted that the Messiah would enter this way. So maybe some in the crowd did. Maybe there's a couple here and there that understand what this sign means. But it would be hard to argue that all these thousands of people who've been so reluctant to accept Jesus suddenly understand the meaning of this sign, while Jesus' very own disciples, the men who were the closest to Him and were the very first to believe in Him, that they remained in the dark. That doesn't make any sense. So there's a sign here, but I think we need to recognize that the crowds didn't understand the meaning of it. In fact, they probably weren't even aware that it was a sign while it was happening. It was only afterwards that the connection with Zechariah 9.9 made any sense. So whatever this sign was meant to reveal, it does not reveal, or at least it is not meant to reveal, let me state it that way, it is not meant to reveal Jesus' Davidic identity. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, because Jesus enters Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. 
they haven't even made that connection yet. No, the reason why they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David is because of what happened down the road in Jericho. To some degree, historically, not in terms of what Matthew shows us, but historically, some, some of it probably has to do with what Jesus did at Bethany with Lazarus. Point is, they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Not because of this sign, but because of the ones that have preceded it. Again, they don't understand the meaning of this sign. So whatever this sign means, it can't mean that because they understand that. They can already see that Jesus is the Son of David. Of course, this is not to say that the sign has nothing to do with Jesus' kingship. After all, the verse says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. All I'm saying is that it is not merely pointing to the fact that Jesus is king. That fact has already been established before this point. So what does this sign mean, if not that? What is this a sign of? if not Jesus' kingship. I think it's found in the second half of this statement, which has to do with the way this king comes. The king is coming to Zion, and how does he come? Humble and mounted on a donkey. That's the truth that Jesus is pointing to. Contrary to what many expected, Jesus did not come to conquer, but to save. That's the sign that he's pointing to from Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. That's why he sends the disciples to go and get the donkey. He's wanting to correct the understanding of Israel. He's not coming to destroy, but to save. For his part, Matthew is interested in what this act reveals about the character of the Messiah. Many of the Jews would have thought that the Messiah was going to come with In vengeance, with great power, they would have utterly detested the thought of a suffering and crucified Messiah. It was utterly incompatible with what they thought that office entailed, so much so that they would have been repulsed at the very thought of it. So they would have thought that there was no way that Jesus could have been the Christ if He died on the cross. That kind of thing doesn't happen to the Messiah. He's too powerful for something like that to happen to Him. What Matthew is reminded of with this entry and what he wants his readers to see is that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come with humility and meekness. That's what's being revealed in the triumphal entry, the humility of Christ. The Old Testament predicted that He would be gentle. And Jesus reveals this on His way into Jerusalem. But again, the problem is that the people haven't made this connection. Do you know why they're shouting Hosanna to the Son of David and throwing their coats down on the road in front of Him? It's not because they think He's about to die. It's because they think He's about to conquer. Remember what I said last week. Up to this point, this journey into Jerusalem looks like a war party. Jesus has been chased out of Jerusalem a few months before this. He crosses over into Perea, across the Jordan, just like David did when he fled from Absalom. He crosses back over, and at the very place where the original conquest of Israel, of Canaan, began, he heals two blind men to testify to the fact that he's the Davidic king. And then he starts marching up to Jerusalem with this throng of Galileans, And two blind men coming along in tow to witness to the fact that he's the son of David. It looks like the king is coming back 
to take vengeance upon his enemies and reestablish his kingdom in Jerusalem. So the people think that the restoration of Israel, the global dominion of the Christ, they think that's at hand. That's why they're celebrating. That's why they're rejoicing. And now they're in such a fever pitch that when Jesus gives them this sign to show them what He's coming to do, it goes right over their heads. They're so excited that they can't even entertain the thought of a suffering Messiah. The thought of a meek and gentle Messiah is so absolutely removed from what they think is about to happen that Zechariah 9 doesn't even enter into their minds. They miss the point completely. So what does the triumphal entry tell us? What's the point of it? Well, it's intended to calibrate, to correct, to bring into focus our understanding of the character of the Messiah. And I think it does this in at least three different ways. First, it reveals that the Messiah is gracious. The triumphal entry reveals that the Messiah is gracious. He is patient. He pardons sin. That's different than what Israel expected. They expected a vengeful king. And they expected one for good reason. I mean, Psalm 2, Psalm 2 says that the Messiah will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Psalm 110, He shatters kings on the day of His wrath and He fills up the nations with corpses. The depiction of the judgment that will occur when He takes power in the Old Testament, it's not pretty. It's actually pretty brutal. Even in Zechariah 9, which is the chapter that on the whole speaks of the peace that will occur during the reign of this king, even then it speaks of how this will be a peace that is established by force through judgment. Listen to the full reading of that passage, Zechariah 9, 9-17. Go ahead and turn there if you'd like to follow along. Zechariah 9, 9-17. Look at this. Peace is established by force here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to you double. For I have bent Judah as a bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His head. For how great is His goodness and how great His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Even here, in this passage, which speaks of the peace that will happen in the Messiah's reign, even here, Judah is bent as a bow and Ephraim is its arrow. 
God says that His people will devour and tread down the sling stones. He says that they will be drenched like the corners of the altar. According to Leviticus 4, the corners of the altar were marked with the blood of the sin offering. That's what it means to be drenched like the corners of the altar. It means to be drenched with blood. So Israel expected a vengeful king. And they expected one for good reason. The Old Testament predicted it. There would be judgment in the days of the Messiah. What the triumphal entry demonstrates is that Israel didn't just get a vengeful king, a righteous king, a just king, who is ready to mete out punishment on the wicked. They got a gracious one as well. The word for humble here, it's the word praus in the Greek. It basically means gentle or humble. Meek would be another way to translate it. Praus is the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for this passage as well. But in the Hebrew, the word here for humble is ani, which is a word that also means humble, but it means humble in the sense of lowly or poor. It's often translated that way as poor. When it's used as a noun, it's often translated as affliction. It's humble, but not humble in the sense of putting oneself last. It's not Philippians 2 humble, where Paul calls on his readers to, quote, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Even the high and mighty can be humble in that sense. They can put other people before them, but they can't be humble in the sense used here in Zechariah 9. Only a person who is suffering want, only a person who is afflicted, can be humble in the sense used here. This is humble in the sense of lowliness, insignificance. That's how Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as one who is afflicted, as one who is lowly. In other words, Jesus doesn't come in order to inflict wrath, but to bear it. That's the significance of the foal of a beast of burden. The word translated beast of burden is the word hupozugion. It's a compound word made up of the word hupo, which means under, and zugos, which means yoke. It literally means under yoked. A hupozugion is an animal that works under a yoke. It's a beast of burden. That concept was so synonymous with the role of a donkey that it's often used in place of the word donkey. Hupozugion. That's what this helps capture for us the significance of this animal in this context. Jesus doesn't ride in on a war horse. He rides in on a working man's mule. A beast of burden. And it symbolizes the fact that Jesus hasn't come to inflict suffering, but to bear it. The pain that is going to be dealt out in the next few days, it isn't going to come from Jesus. It's going to come to Him. It's going to land on Him. How does this work? How can the Christ both inflict wrath on sinners for their unrighteousness and at the same time bear that wrath? That's going to be disclosed, of course, by the week's end. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, He's going to bear the wrath of God in place of sinners such that everyone who believes on Him will be pardoned for their sin. But then in one week's time, one week after this Palm Sunday, He's then going to be raised with all power and authority necessary to judge the earth as God's king. In other words, Jesus is raised with the power to judge the wicked, and one day He'll return to do that, but not without first dying, so that everyone who believes on Him can be saved. 
This is why I say that the triumphal entry tells Israel that they have both a just king and a gracious one. This entry demonstrates that Jesus is the Davidic king who will one day judge the earth. But at this time, he is entering, to, he is entering Jerusalem not to destroy, but to save. Again, the fuller quotation of Zechariah 9.9 reads like this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, he will put an end to the wickedness of the nations of the earth, but according to verse 10, he will also speak peace to them. He is a just king, but he is also a gracious king. He hates sin, and yet he has come to extend grace and mercy to the sinner. This is one of the truths that the triumphal entry is supposed to symbolize. It's supposed to adjust Israel's understanding of their Messiah and his mission. He has not come just to destroy, but to forgive. The triumphal entry at once warns the sinner of impending doom and extends them an olive branch as well. Israel misunderstood the second half of that equation. That's why they're celebrating. They're looking forward to the wrath of the king while ignoring what the Old Testament said about his mercy and grace. So the triumphal entry reveals, number one, that the Messiah is gracious. Number two, it reveals that he is humble. He is humble. So he is gracious and he is also humble. This point goes hand in hand with the first one, and the difference is subtle, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do think it's still worth noting the difference between these two points. Once again, Israel expected the Davidic king to come in this overwhelming display of power in order to judge the earth, and what the triumphal entry signals is that although Jesus does claim great power and authority, not only is he at the same time gentle and gracious, Demonstrating great patience in the face of sin in order to pardon it. Not only is he that, but he is also humble. So he has this power and authority. This sign does point to the fact that Jesus is the Davidic king by fulfilling what the Old Testament predicted about his arrival. And yet, in the way Jesus claims this authority, he demonstrates that as powerful as he is, he is also humble. Once again, Jesus comes in on a donkey, on a beast of burden. He comes in on an animal of labor. And He comes prouse, humble. And humble in the sense of lowly or even afflicted. He's not going to dish out wrath. He's going to receive it. Why? Why is He going to bear affliction? Well, it's for the salvation of others. In the words of Isaiah 53, Jesus is coming as one who is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He comes lowly. Why? Isaiah 53, he does it in order to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He is esteemed, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but the reason why he is wounded is not because he is a sinner, it's because it's not because he deserves wrath. No, he's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that falls on Him brings us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. Listen, by next week we'll see. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and when He enters into Jerusalem, He enters in in order to offer Himself to Israel as the Passover lamb. 
That's going to be the significance when he's standing in the temple on Monday of Passion Week. We'll talk about that next week. He comes into Jerusalem not to judge, but to die on behalf of sinners, to be their sacrifice for them. To put it into words that we studied just a couple of weeks ago, words which Jesus uttered actually on the road up to Jerusalem. Jesus isn't entering into the city in order to be served. That's not what he's going to use his power and authority for, to be served. No, he's going to serve. He's going to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. So really, Jesus is humble in every sense of the word. He's humble in the sense of lowly and afflicted. And the reason why he is this way is because he's choosing to put the well-being of others before himself. He's humble in that sense as well. He's humble in both senses. He doesn't come with this awesome display of power, but with meekness and gentleness, and He's coming in this way for the sake of others. The King is coming as the chief servant. That's what the triumphal entry symbolizes. And as we saw in the aftermath of James and John's request to sit on Jesus' right and left, uh, sit on Jesus' right and left, as we saw then, this is a radical concept for Israel at this time. The triumphal entry adjusts their expectation of the Messiah in this sense. He is powerful, but He's using that power to serve others. He is humble. The third thing that the triumphal entry reveals about the Messiah is this. He is a heavenly king. He is a heavenly king. What I mean is this. Israel expected... Christ's kingdom to arrive immediately. Again, that's why they're celebrating. They've seen or heard about the healing of the blind men at Jericho and realizing that Jesus is the Davidic king, they think He's going up to Jerusalem in order to conquer it. This looks like a spurned king coming back to vanquish those who have rebelled against Him. That's why they're shouting Hosanna to the Son of David and spreading out cloaks and palm branches on the way before Him. The people believe this is the return of the Davidic throne. The king is coming into Jerusalem in order to, in order to claim His throne. And so they're rolling out the ancient equivalent of a royal carpet in order to welcome their king home. They're excited because they think the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And in one sense, they're right. Because where the king is, there is the kingdom. The laws and the customs of the kingdom, all the government of the kingdom, really the very identity of the nation, it all rests in the will and the command of the king. So in one sense, the kingdom has arrived with the arrival of the king, because where the king is, there the kingdom is as well. But at the same time, they're expecting Jesus to project his power and establish his earthly throne right away. And that's not going to happen. And the triumphal entry points to this fact. Yes, the king is present, but he hasn't come to establish his kingdom straight away. And if the people only looked at the method of his arrival, they would see that. Now to be fair, it wouldn't be completely unheard of for a king to ride uh, a donkey on his way on the way to his coronation. According to 1 Kings 1, Solomon rode to the place of his anointed seated on uh, David's mule. So it's not unheard of for a king to ride an animal like a donkey and to even do so as he entered into his kingdom. Perhaps this is even why the people are so enthusiastic. Jesus' entry on the donkey gives the appearance of a royal coronation. But at the same time, they don't think that Jesus is going to enter into this kingdom peacefully. 
They think that he's coming to exact vengeance on his enemies and to establish his throne in this powerful display of force. They think he's coming to conquer. Well, a donkey is hardly a suitable mode of transportation for that kind of an entrance. An animal of war, a horse, for instance, that would be far more fitting if that were the message Jesus wanted to send. And kings were known to ride those in the appropriate context as well. That would make more sense if Jesus wanted to send the message that he was coming to conquer. He'd ride in on a horse. In fact, that's the way his return is described in Revelation. When he does come back to destroy the wicked, Revelation 19, he comes seated on a white horse. That is the appropriate form of entry for a king going to make war. But that's not what Jesus is coming to do. And so he doesn't enter that way. Instead, he comes seated on a beast of of burden. The message clearly is that he's not come to wage war. At least not immediately. The context of this quotation from Zechariah 9 makes this clear. According to verse 10, when the king comes, God will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and the king shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a king that is coming to make peace, not war. He's going to establish world peace, actually. That's why the donkey is the choice animal for this kind of an entry. It symbolizes the peace that will come under this Messiah's reign. Now, from the context, it's also clear that he will establish this peace by force. So, he's going to destroy Israel's foes. That's how he will achieve world peace. So, war has to factor in here somewhere. But if it were possible for the Israelite to make the connection between this entry and Zechariah 9, then it would also be clear that at some point in this process, it would be necessary for this king to die, and that this death would even precede his coming victory. For example, you turn over to chapter 12, and as God describes the coming restoration of Israel, he says in verses 3 to 6 of Zechariah 12, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather it against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pod in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place uh, uh, in Jerusalem. So again, there's going to be war. We're talking like, you know, flaming torch, uh, a blazing pot in the midst of wood. This is going to just consume. The people are going to consume what's around them. God's going to empower His people to fight this battle. But as He continues to describe this day of restoration, God then says this in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You see what's going on there? God says that He's going to pour out His Spirit on Israel, and as He pours out His Spirit, there's going to be this kind of realization that takes place as the people look on Him whom they have pierced and understand what they've done. This individual is clearly God, and yet He's also somehow someone else. God says, when they look on Me, referring to Himself, 
on Him, that's now someone else, God says, when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. This reference is Trinitarian. In Israel's recognition of this coming Davidic King, who will be called, by the way, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, according to Isaiah 9.6, and who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, according to Isaiah 53.5. They're going to see Him, recognize Him. Point is, in this day, God's going to cause Israel to recognize this king. Listen, He's going to open their eyes. And when this happens, Israel's going to realize that they've rejected this king. In Zechariah 14, this king, the Lord, then goes out before Israel to lead them in victory. He will fight for them. But it's clear from what's happening in Zechariah 12 that he'll be rejected first. So it makes sense why Jesus is coming on a beast of burden. It's not only because He's going to establish peace. It's also because He's not coming to make war. Not at this time. He's come to establish a kingdom. But not one right away. First He's come to be rejected and die. So the kingdom is not immediate. It's as Jesus would later tell Pilate when He was under trial. And Pilate asks Him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers him by saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. This is what I mean when I say that the triumphal entry reveals that Jesus is a heavenly king. By that, I don't mean that he won't reign here on earth. Rather, I mean that he's, he has more than mere political restoration in mind when he enters into Jerusalem. The people are expecting Jesus to establish His kingdom right away. And the reason why is because they're expecting this is because they don't understand the problem of their sin. They don't understand that it's necessary for the Messiah to die for their sins first before coming to establish His kingdom. Jesus does understand this. So He has a more long-term vision of the kingdom in mind. His vision of the kingdom is an eternal one where sins are forgiven and His people live with Him forever and ever. That requires a sacrifice for sin. It requires that Jesus die before He conquers. There's a spiritual component to the kingdom that Jesus has in mind. And it's this spiritual component that makes it necessary for Jesus to adopt a long-term view of the kingdom of heaven. The people are ignorant of this spiritual component, so they're only thinking in the near term. Jesus means to correct this misunderstanding by entering in such a way as to make it apparent that He's not going to war. He's seated on a beast of burden, an animal that signifies peace. So the question that I have for you this morning is this. Who do you think Jesus is? What kind of a Messiah do you worship? As I said at the very beginning of our message, there's a lot of confusion out there about who Jesus is. The triumphal entry is intended to clear that up. Just as Israel had wrong ideas about the Messiah that were corrected by the triumphal entry, so it is for you today. So what kind of a Messiah do you worship? Who do you think Jesus is? Is He both just and gracious? Full of both zeal and mercy? Is He both powerful and humble? Strong and yet gentle? Great 
and yet meek? A servant king? What about his kingdom? Is it one for this earth only? Or does it have a spiritual component to it as well? What do you think he came to this earth for? Do you think he came merely to improve this life? Or do you think that the core purpose of his mission was your eternal reconciliation with God? The implication to those questions are huge, and they'll be reflected in the way you live. If you worship a holy king, for instance, then you will despise evil and repent of sin. If if he is gracious, then you will find peace in his forgiveness. And you will eagerly extend that mercy, that same grace, that same mercy, even towards your enemies. If he is powerful, then you will fear him. And if he is, a, if he is humble, then you will also trust him. And if his kingdom is indeed not of this world, then you will not live for this world, but for the next. You will follow in his footsteps by storing up treasure, not here on earth, but in heaven, by making the necessary sacrifices in this life to advance his kingdom in the next. In short, you will, ser- you will serve others by faithfully and steadfastly proclaiming His gospel. And by the way, by the way, you will define that gospel primarily in heavenly terms, in terms of what is received, not in this life, but in the next. And you'll talk about how this is done through Jesus' death on the cross for us. You will latch on to the spiritual component of this gospel that led Jesus to suffer and die before He reigned. So how about it? What is your Messiah like? Examine yourself to make sure that the king you worship is the same one that's sitting here on the donkey and not the one that the crowds thought they were getting when they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Let's close this morning by praying that God would open our eyes to see the glory of this great and lowly king. Let's pray.